Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast. For as long as I remember, I've been drawn to creepy stories. As a kid, my bookshelf was filled with the scary stories to tell in the dark type books, and despite them being age-inappropriate, my brother and I read every one cover to cover. Throughout life, this interest in the dark and spooky has served me with a varying degree of benefit. For one, it earned me a free going over by a child psychologist, but more pleasantly, it led to an interest in local folklore, horror, the UFO phenomenon, true crime, and all the other things I'm still fascinated by as a 30-something. Although maturity has tempered my tolerance for the more absurd tales, every Halloween I get overcome by nostalgia and make a point to dust off some of these collections. Fortunately, I can again relive the terror and wonder by reading these same books with my son. With Halloween just around the corner, my mind again has turned to spooky stories, and as such, I want to do my best to put together an episode presenting the sort of material I enjoyed as a kid. Just like I did with the Haunted Halifax episode I released during Halloween of 2016, I again called upon my favorite Canadian horror writer and storyteller, Steve Vernon. For any of you who haven't had the pleasure of getting to know Steve and his work, let me give a brief introduction. Steve Vernon, like me, is a collector of strange and unusual stories. I happen to present mine in a podcast. Steve presents his in his ever-growing library of books. In addition to putting his stories to paper, as you will hear shortly, Steve is a fantastic oral storyteller, a skill which often earns him invites to local schools or public events. At the end of this episode, I'll give you some info on where you can get Steve's books, and I'll give a recommendation for some of my favorites. So with the introductions behind us, let's get to it. This episode will feature the return of horror author Steve Vernon, who will share two stories from Canada's haunted past. In planning this episode, I wanted to do an on-location recording, meaning I wanted to sit with Steve at the location of one of his stories and record right there in the wind and under the falling leaves. Since his stories are as much about the places as they are about their dark histories, I felt sacrificing audio clarity in favor of the natural ambiance was more than a fair trade. Considering Steve's resemblance to a living encyclopedia of local ghost stories, I knew finding a good spot with a dark story would be no problem. For a location and a story, we settled on Black Rock Beach in Halifax's Point Pleasant Park. At present day, this rocky stretch is home to many dog walkers, bike riders, and picnic enthusiasts. But Black Rock Beach's history is far darker than those walking through its paths or shores likely realize. 
the beach's dark history you won't see mentioned on any of the signage in and around the park. A small outcropping on Black Rock Beach was the site of one of Halifax's public gallows, a setting for many public executions. The amount of people who met their end on the site is unsettling, but to make it worse, the tradition at the time was to leave the lifeless bodies hanging on the noose, or within a metal cage to serve as a grim warning to the incoming sailors who passed by on their way to Halifax's harbor. In tonight's episode, a Halloween special, Steve will share his story, The Piecemeal Ghost of Black Rock Beach, a story he based on one of the many public executions held on the site. I'll now cut to my clip recorded on location at Halifax's Black Rock Beach. So what's the first story you're going to share? Well, the first story I thought I'd read is called The Piecemeal Ghost of Black Rock Beach. And the story itself has kind of a story behind it. When I first wrote this story, it was a shorter version, and it was published in, uh, in the Chronicle Herald in, in a weekend special that they had done on, on ghosts. And uh, about three years after it had come out, I was attending a ghost walk by a local uh, ghost walker, and he retold this story. And I said, that's a very interesting story. I said, where, where did you find this story? Because he'd he'd kind of mutilated some of the details. And he said, oh, I, I, I saw it in, a, in the Chronicle Herald. And I said, well, you know, did you happen to have a look at who wrote that story? And uh, he said, no, I didn't. I said, well, you're looking at the fella. And I, when I thought about how he had missed some significant details, I said, I, I really need to get this down on something a little bit more um, permanent than just a newspaper. So that's when I took, took it upon myself and decided it was time to start writing down some of the ghost stories that I had collected so that people could read them in their true and, and proper form. So this is uh, a story about Black Rock Beach. Now, we just walked past it. It was too windy to sit and tell stories there, but uh, this would be a good place to start. Black Rock Beach is a small open cove at the mouth of Halifax Harbor, visible from the waterfront parking lot that overlooks Point Pleasant Park. The beach is too shallow to land anything larger than a sloop, but early Halifax settlers found another use for this particular promontory. Black Rock Beach was the site of Halifax's uh, second earliest public gallows. The location was chosen because of its visibility. It was, it was simple advertising. The idea was the gallows would serve as a warning sign to sailors entering the harbor to warn them that this is Halifax and we don't mess around here. Don't, don't get owly and rowdy and break the laws and such. Now, mind you, in 1762, Halifax was a pretty lawless place. France was one year from ceding Canada over to Britain following their defeat in the Seven Years' War, and it was a time of fear and harsh punishments. So let me take you back there. There's a young man standing in the fringe of larch trees overlooking Black Rock Beach, staring down at the Black Rock Beach gallows as if he could see his future there. His name was Patrick Tulligan. He was lean in the way of young men who burn hot and fast. His hair was a wild and tangled snarl, caught and knotted 
by the cold Atlantic wind. He stood in the woods overlooking the beach, staring down at the gallows, the timber stark and silhouetted by the setting sun like black burnt bones. The gallows were a new addition. Before that, the constables had simply dangled criminals from the branches of a standing beech oak. Hangings were far more common than you might imagine back in old Halifax. One servant was hung for stealing a silver spoon from a downtown tavern where she worked. A year later, the spoon was found beneath the tavern sink where it had fallen. Oops, there were an awful lot of ways to earn yourself a hanging back in Halifax in the 1700s. You could be hung for offenses as varied as murder, treason, rape, manslaughter, arson, highway robbery, polygamy, major theft, firing a gun with intent to injure, cutting a leak hole in a dike, or unlawful impersonation of another person at a bail hearing. All of these were hanging offenses. Occasionally, first-time offenders were simply branded with a letter burnt onto the ball of their right thumb or right on their forehead. Second-time offenders were automatically hanged. Now Patrick stood and he stared just as any wild man, young man might, wondering to himself if someday he'd stand, be standing a whole lot closer to that gallows than he would like. You're looking at your doom, Patrick, my lad. Patrick turned. He had been startled by the sudden voice so close to his ears. It was Mad Meg who had walked the woods with a rope in her hand, searching for a milk cow who had run off six years past. She was said to have the evil eye, for one milky yellow left eye stubbornly stared in the wrong direction. "'Are you looking for your cow, then, Meg?' Patrick said, unconcerned. "'Aye, she's not far gone, just over the hill, I'll wager. I heard her mooing and lowing in the woodlands, and I'm close to catching her.' Patrick laughed. Not a cruel laugh, but the laugh of a young man who rarely thinks things through. Meg, your cow has been gone for six long years. It's not but bones and tangleweed, rotting the dirt somewhere, or chewing fat grass in some farmer's pasture, or maybe rendered down in night soil in the bottom of a thieving beggar's privy. Meg fixed him with her yellow eye, pointing down at the gallows. Look you long at that swinging collar of hemp, young Patrick, for you will wear it as a forget-me-not before the last summer wind blows the first leaf of autumn. Patrick laughed harder. Meg had been mad long before her cow had wandered off, and few paid her actions any heed. Still, it was whispered that she had the gift of second sight. You'll hang for three long decades and linger longer, I'll warrant. He touched his fingertips to his collar feeling the stubborn knot of his Adam's apple quivering beneath his outstretched thumb. Her words scared him, but he laughed to mask his fear. Ha! he scoffed. How long can a rope hang? Meg wrapped her bit of cow rope about her neck, and she curtsied. Long as memory, longer than time, longer than the tail of the wind. Then she turned, and she ran like an out-of-control storm, in a beat of bird's wings, she was gone, vanished like smoke up a chimney hole. If he was rattled, Patrick would not show it. 
He had hand-hauled codfish and had nearly died in a half a dozen storms at sea. So he walked that long path back to Halifax with the straps of his gunny sack chafing against his work-hardened shoulders, hearkened to the chipmunk. I wonder what he thinks of the story. <laughs> he walked that long path back to Halifax with the straps of his gunny sack chafing against his work-hardened shoulders, not realizing just how long it would be that he would walk that path again and in what manner he would be forced to walk it. Now back then, as now, the streets of Halifax all rolled down to the sea, down to the harbor front where the nastiest taverns poured the thinnest ales and the women's laughter sounded like the clatter of coins. Halifax was a port city. Like today, there were plenty of places for a sailor to spend his money. Folks came and went like the passing of the tide, and everybody expected a profit. Patrick had a girlfriend named Belinda Merriwell, better known as Bella the Isle. Belinda was born and raised on McNabb's Island. He had been seeing her for three long months, a long time for a lad who had once sworn that he would never be tied down. You'll stand before a preacher yet, Belinda swore. I'll face the hangman first, Patrick allowed. That night, Patrick danced a jig, and not feeling the dark eyes of the innkeeper hanging upon the two of them and he, as he stole a kiss from Belinda. The innkeeper, one Thomas Tanner, was a fat man with an evil disposition. He had set his heart on the beautiful belle of the isle, and he had vowed that she would be his wife. But Patrick was far too tough, and he had too many friends for Tanner to risk an open confrontation. Besides, there were better ways to get around an obstacle like Patrick. You will dance your next jig on a higher dance floor than this, Tanner swore. One summer day, a ship was robbed and sunk just off Devil's Island. The magistrate searched every tavern for likely suspects. It was an election year, and they were taking no chances. Thomas Tanner was more than glad to help them out. Bombs were greased and strings tugged, and Patrick was sentenced for piracy. Now, everyone knew that Patrick, a little wild boy, was certainly no pirate. But the magistrates closed ranks about Tanner's testimony, and they would hear not one word in young Patrick's defense. You shall be whipped at the cart's tail to Black Rock Beach, where you will hang by the neck until dead, the judge pronounced. Yet all that Patrick could hear was the laughter of old Meg taunting him with her prophecy. The town guard led Patrick down to Black Rock Beach with his hands tied to the back end of an ox cart. They beat him every step of the way down to the gallows. A guardsman following behind Patrick's cart laying his whip across Patrick's bare back. Down at the beach, they slid the noose about Patrick's throat, snugging it closely to be certain that the knot would snap his neck properly. Patrick looked wildly about in the crowd that had gathered to watch him drop, searching in vain for the long auburn tresses of his bell of the isle. She was nowhere in sight. All that he saw was the crowd, headed by the fat and smirking Thomas Tanner, and high on the slope of the hill looking down on the scene was Mad Meg. She waved her cow rope like a goodbye hanky at young Patrick. 
The last sound that Patrick heard was Meg's laughter, rising up like the call of the seagulls over the ever-returning tide. As Patrick dropped through the trap door, the first leaf of autumn, coaxed by the late August wind, fell from the oak tree above the gallows. Some swore it was a sign that the good luck had run out of Halifax Harbor, but for the sun had fallen, the beer mugs were raised in the waterfront taverns, and folks forgot about the fate of the young, late Patrick Tulligan. After the hanging, the hangman decided there would be a fine idea to build a cage of iron about the boy's body and let him swing and hang there as a warning to the sailors passing into Halifax Harbor. Patrick hung in his cage with none but the ravens to keep him company. His bones grew just as black and fungus stained and fungus stained them blacker still. After a time, even the flies found nothing to feast upon. The years passed. The Halifax townsfolk forgot Patrick's name. It became a dare for young boys to run up the dark rock and touch the cage. It was whispered that if you got too close to the iron bars, a pair of black withered hands would reach out and grab you and drag you into the cage. And all this time, the bell of the isle walked the beaches of McNabb's Island, gazing out across at the withered remains of her long-lost lover. She never married, and her long auburn hair ran just as white as the foam-tossed waves. The passing sailors swore that you could hear the sound of the wind running through her hair, and the call of her lonely keenan haunting the ocean air. As Patrick's remains slowly rotted, Halifax continued to grow. Houses were built around Black Rock Beach. Those who lived within eyeshot began to complain about the gallows sticking out there like a canker in the mouth of the harbor. Seems that old Patrick was bad for real estate values. The city council decided that it would be better to move the gallows down to McNabb's Island. Being good frugal Scots, they dismantled the Black Rock Beach gallows piece by piece, and they rode them by dory across the harbor to McNabb's Island, where they were reassembled. The three R's, reduce, reuse, and recycle, were known even then, and the authorities decided to take Patrick with them to a new home on Hangman's Beach. But the bones that had hung for thirty long years were brittle with age, by the time that the cage reached the dory, Patrick had fallen to pieces, his bones broken and scattered too fine and too far to bother picking up, were left upon the beach for the crabs to pick over. Even now the fishermen say that on long, lonely August nights you can hear Bell walking the McNabb's Island beach line, calling out soft and low to her long-lost lover, Patrick O'Patrick. And on certain August nights, a figure of a young man has been seen stooping and bending on Black Rock Beach, picking up pieces of something from the ground. So if you are out there on Black Rock Beach, when the moon is hanging over the waters like a fat, rotted pumpkin, and some strange old fellow walks up to you and asks, Can you give me a hand? I believe I'd run if I were you. Now that story is actually based on the tale of Ned Jordan, who was a pirate and who was hung and whose body was hung in a gibbet on 
Black Rock Beach and hung there for 30 long years as a warning to the sailors who'd come to shore. I hope you enjoyed that story. As it turns out, I have a bonus for you. After Steve finished telling that story, we had a conversation about Canada's history of corporal punishment, specifically public hangings. This led Steve to sharing some details of several other stories he authored in which folks meet their end by the hangman's noose. As we were recording on an unseasonally warm October day, I invited Steve to share another of his stories surrounding a public hanging, and thankfully he was more than willing. In the next story, Steve will share his twisted account of Prince Edward Island's last public hanging. What do you have for his next, Steve? Well, this next story is from Maritime Murders, which was my latest book. It is a collection of 19 true murder tales from around the Maritimes, primarily from Nova Scotia, but a couple from uh, uh, New Brunswick and a couple from PEI. But this one is from PEI. It's called One Hanging Wasn't Enough, and it is the story of George Dowie, the last public hanging in Prince Edward Island, and there's a darn good reason why it was the last public hanging. George Dowie, he was a sailor, and and he sailed the seas, and he was a sailor who lived by that old uh, motto that a sailor should have a woman in every port. He was married. He had a family back in Dublin. It was a, a wife, and I think it was two kids, but he was spent most of his time you know, a sea. He'd just send the money back to them whenever he could. So, And wherever he, he landed, he made sure he had a girlfriend. Now, Charlottetown was home to, to one lady. Her name was Flora. Flora was a businesswoman, actually. And uh, she made her living, how shall I put it, by, by renting her bedroom temporarily by the hour with company provided. She was a lady of the night. Well, George Dowie was one of her favorite fellows because he could sing and he could dance and he always had a ready joke on his lips and he was just a good-hearted fella and he was a bit of a hunk. So George Dowie came to town one one weekend and, and he went and told Flora that he was in town, and she, she dropped everything. She was more than happy to see him. So they, they headed out the first night, and they, they hit the taverns first. And uh, Flora was, was having an attack of what they used to politely refer to as the gin sweats. She drank too much gin, and she was having a, a flash of heat sort of thing, and the sweat was just pouring off her. So uh, George Dowie, being a gentleman, he took her out to the to the the the, the main pump out out in front of the the tavern, and he had her head down and he was pumping some cool water on her to cool her off, sort of thing. Because that's what a gentleman did. It's kind of an odd picture when you think about it. Well, this other young fellow named John, he come along, 
And he was a patron of Flora's. He, he, he'd spent many a night with her and many a time at the tavern with her. And being young, he kind of, he, he, he kind of had a whole possessive thing going. He saw her there and he said, now, shouldn't you be with me tonight? She, and she said, no, sir, I, I am with, I'm with George Dowie, as you can clearly see. She says, he, he's here you know, for this next week. If you want to come and spend some time with me next week, I'll be more than happy to see you. You know, just, just bring your silver and we'll get along fine. Well, John, he, he didn't take to that kindly, and he started throwing his weight around. Being young, he figured he could, he figured he could take George Dowie, and he pushed George Dowie, and they got to arguing, and he pushed him again, and he pushed him a third time, and George Dowie hauled out a fish knife from his belt, and he shoved it into John's chest, and John fell to the ground. Well, this was out in broad, you know, in broad public, in the public eye. A lot of people could see, so they called for the, the police right off the bat. And the policeman showed up, and he says, I believe that young man is dead. And, and George Dowie, he, he was kind of feeling kind of full of himself. He said, well, I believe he ought to be dead. I just shoved the knife into his chest right down to the hilt. He says, if he isn't dead, I, I don't like to think what he'd be. I think that George Dowie really figured he could talk his way out of it. He was standing on the ground of self-defense. John was bigger than him, he was younger than him, he was feistier than him, and he had come at him and, and sort of... Uh, you, you could argue that he was just simply defending himself, and he went on that argument, but they still had to try him, so they took him to jail, and he was in jail for some time. Being a popular fella, they, they had a hard time gathering a jury, and they also had a hard time finding a judge because it was also duck season. When they called the judge, he said, no, I'm going to be out in the marsh hunting ducks. So, so George was in the jail for at least two months. He had had time to, 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 to want to tie up some loose ends, so he, he wrote himself a poem, and he wrote three articles for the local newspaper, and, and, he, and he wrote uh, for the... the he, got the church uh, to send somebody over, and the, the, the church fellow, the minister, prayed for him, and uh, they talked back and forth, religion. He was a real learned man, it turned out. And then he got to thinking about his wife back in Dublin, and he called Flora, because she was the only one he trusted, and he said, Flora, I have a letter for you. And Flora was touched. She said, oh, that's nice. You wrote me a letter. I, I, I'm touched to think of that, you know. And, and he said, no, no, it's not for you. He said, I want you to mail it to my wife. Well, this was the first thing that Laura, Flora had heard about this wife. And when she found out that not only did he have a wife, but he had two kids, she was upset. See, she didn't mind doing business, but she had something, you know, she had sort of a code against sleeping with a married fella. And she was upset that George had never shared this fact with her. So she went to the judge, and she told the judge, no, it hadn't been self-defense. The John had been uh, talking bad about uh, George Dowie for quite some time and threatening to hurt him, and the George had been scared of that. And he'd started to carry that knife around, and he'd bragged to her that, Soon as John come his way, he's going to stick that knife in fast and not give him a chance. In short, she lied.
And that lie was all it took to turn the court. And when they stood trial and they heard that lie, they decided that George Dowie was guilty, guilty, guilty. And he was going to be hung by the neck until he was dead. So they took him down to the gallows. And as I said, George was a, he was a very popular fella. And they were worried that some people would come and try to break him free. So they, they brought the militia down. And the militia, they marched him to the gallows right there in central Charlottetown. They, they had their, their muskets out and their bayonets, you know, and they, 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 they were there just to make sure there was no trouble. Well, the, the trouble started when they couldn't get their regular hangman down. Some, some said he was busy and some said he was scared to come down because he was afraid there was going to be trouble. So they found a replacement hangman. Now, hangman has is, is got a very particular set of skills. And, and I, I, I know I sound like a, a bad action hero that way, but he has, he has skills and talent. There's ways in which you tie a knot and there's an art and a science to hanging somebody. And this replacement fellow didn't know much at all about the art. So they, they put George Dowie up on the gallows, and they set a chair down there. And George sat down, and he read his three-page poem to the crowd, and he read his three newspaper articles. And then when he was done reading, he shook the hand of the sheriff, he shook the hand of the judge, he shook the hand of the preacher who had prayed for him, and he says, well, I believe I'm ready to go. So they put the rope around his neck and they opened that trap door and old George Dowie fell down through and as he got halfway down, snap, the rope broke and he crashed to the ground. See, when you hang somebody, you want that snap to be on the neck. You want that pull to, to snap the neck bone. But because the rope had broke before the snap could break the neck bone, he just crashed to the ground. He was all bruised up, all shook up. They picked him up. You know, some of the crowd were excited. They had that idea that, okay, we've hung him, and he's living, so we can, you know, he's, he gets away. He gets a get-out-of-jail-free card. But uh, the authorities talked it over, and they said, no, the judge said that he would be hung by the neck until he was dead, dead, dead. And that was the actual proclamation that was i checked the, the 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 court transcripts and they said he's not dead 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 he's not even one dead yet so they got another rope they took him back to his cell you know and while he rested there they got another rope and they knotted it up and they set it up and they they brought him out and marched him up and they didn't bother with the the recitation you know they, they said we'd already heard the poem and all that and that was nice but we want to hang you now so they put that second rope around his neck and they opened the trap door and he fell down through and it got halfway through and crack. The rope didn't break, but the hook that was hooked to the main gallows pulled free and he crashed down to the ground a second time and he was in really rough shape. He couldn't stand, he could barely, you know, he couldn't even talk, you know. And the militiamen, stood up and they took the rope and they flung it back over the gallows and they didn't bother trying to set it up or anything they just pulled George Dowie up and he hung there by the neck and the militia held him up 
and it was something like 23 minutes he hung there kicking because there was no snap to break that neck cleanly. So instead, he strangled to death. And I know in the movies, when you see somebody strangling, you know, he's hanging on there for 38 seconds or so, and all of a sudden the dude goes, you know, limp and he's dead. It doesn't work that easily. It takes an awful lot to strangle a man, especially when you've got somebody who's lived his vigorous life. George Dowie had a big stocky bull neck from his hard work. So he hung there for about 23, 24 minutes, and people from the audience even came down and helped hold, you know, just, just because they wanted it over with at that point in time. So after that, they decided there was going to be no more public gallows, and they buried George Dowie in the, in the main graveyard in, Sem- in, in Charlottetown, but they buried him in an unmarked grave because they were afraid the people were still so riled up that they'd dig him up. And they say his ghost still haunts that area. Yeah. Now, this was a, a tale, a collection of murder tales, so I didn't get so much into the ghost part of it. It's just a, a really cool, true crime tale. I hope you've enjoyed Steve's stories. Next time you visit Halifax, be sure to take a walk through Black Rock Beach. Just be careful when you do. Who knows what you'll encounter when you're there. I want to thank Steve Vernon for again sharing his gift of storytelling with listeners of the show. I know many of you enjoyed his appearance just prior to Halloween of 2016. If you haven't heard that episode, go back through the archives and find Haunted Halifax. Also, for those of you who've been taken by Steve's style of storytelling, get to your local bookstore and pick up one of his books. My favorites are Halifax Haunts, which features a collection of Halifax's many haunted locations, as well as his book Haunted Harbors, which compiles stories set in Nova Scotia's harbors. Now with that said, we'll conclude this episode of the Nighttime Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more content, please check out the Nighttime Patron Group, where for $1 a month, you can support the show and access supporter-exclusive bonus content. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but is unable to do so financially, you can help me by telling your friends about the show and by leaving a positive review for Nighttime on Apple Podcasts or the equivalent. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. So with that said, until next time, keep looking around. Let me know if you see anything weird. Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.